Sometimes we hear of such a radical conversion, the kind of a person that we would least expect ever to get religious, as sometimes we like to say, that when it happens, it's, it's so stunning that it even shocks unbelievers. That's how it must have been when Saul of Tarsus came back from the Damascus Road experience and eventually became known as Paul, the apostle of the Christian faith. Imagine being in Jerusalem. You're afraid of what the Jewish persecutors might do to you. You've heard of Saul of Tarsus. And you're there in Jerusalem one Sunday morning, bright and early, worshiping the Lord. And in the back of the church comes a familiar face happens to be Saul of Tarsus. Your immediate thought is, oh no, he's back with a vengeance. We're really in trouble. But then he goes, oh no, you're not in trouble. I'm saved. And you think, yeah, right. I mean, we pray for a lot of people, but you're not even, you haven't even been on our prayer list. The only thing you've been on our prayer list for is that we wouldn't ever see you face to face, because we hear the kind of stuff you do. But he was so totally, radically changed, and that's so much like God. If you have anybody in your life that you happen to think is unreachable, then you just think of Saul of Tarsus. You have somebody that you think, oh, I, I just quit praying for that person, because every time I even mention the gospel, they laugh or they scorn or they try to argue me down or whatever. You just think of Saul of Tarsus turned Paul the Apostle. In the 1700s, there was a young boy named Johnny, seven years of age when his mother died. His mother was the one who had been responsible for his growth up to that point. And she taught him scripture from an early age. Of course, seven is not an old age, but by the time she died, he was still very young, seven years of age. But she had taught him enough scripture to plant seeds. Her death changed his life. He went to live with relatives. His secret ambition was always to go out and be a sailor at sea, and eventually he became an apprentice in the British Navy and fulfilled his, his wild childhood dreams of sailing the ocean. Soon, Johnny Newton's bad side took over, being with the guys, being out at sea. He developed quite a reputation for being a drunk and for being able to swear for two hours straight without repeating himself. Now, I, I frankly don't know how that's possible, but that was simply his reputation. Eventually, he got involved with the Portuguese slave traders who bought and uh, stole, actually, Africans and sold them to the New World. It got worse for him. He eventually became a slave himself so bad was it that he was forced to pick up food off the floor with his teeth, and if he touched the food with his hands, he was beaten. He eventually escaped and signaled for help. He was on an island, as the story goes, and he was picked up by a ship, and because he was such a skilled navigator, he quickly became the first mate of that ship. One day, while the captain was sailing to an island and off on the shore doing business, by the time he got back to the ship and they were ready to set sail, the whole crew was drunk and he blamed it on Johnny Newton. 
And so with his back of his hand, the captain slugged him in the face, and Newton fell overboard, almost drowned at sea that day. A sailor saved him, brought him to land. A couple weeks later, he sails back to England, and he remembers the scriptures that his mother planted within his heart. And he cried out to God on the way back to England for God to save him. And you know what happened? God did, right? When you call upon the name of the Lord, he does. With a sincere heart, he asked God to save him. God radically changed his life. So radically that he became the chaplain for the British Parliament. And he wanted to express his thanksgiving for what God had done, and he wrote a wonderful song that we still sing today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Saul of Tarsus could have used that as the theme song to his radio program. I know he didn't have one, but that was, that was sort of his, his banner statement of life, the grace of God. He talks about it so much, and he talks about it so much in the book of Romans. It's been the outline, sort of, hasn't it? The wrath of God, then a big, huge section on what the grace of God is all about. And then he speaks of the plan of God. And then finally, the fourth section of Romans is the will of God. That's what we've been dwelling on now for some time. Well, one thing about Paul, he was never moderate at anything, was he? You know, we read about him sort of like Johnny Newton, don't we? When he was a, a, a Jewish antagonist, when he was a rabbi, he went into it headlong. I mean, if he did, disagreed with Christians, he just didn't disagree. He was going to lock them in prison or kill them. So that when he became a Christian, he didn't become a moderate Christian. He became a radical believer. He went around as an apostle, one sent out on a royal mission from a king, the word means. In fact, that's how Romans chapter 1 opens up. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. I love it. The chief antagonist of the church became the chief protagonist for the cause of Christ, the apostle. Reminds me of what John Wesley used to say. He said, I like my religion like I like my tea. I want it hot. How do you like your Christianity? Mild? Lukewarm, cold, or do you like it hot? That was the heart of Paul. He loved it hot. Well, that's sort of an introduction to where we are for this reason. The book of Romans is essentially over at this point. We've concluded it as far as exposition, as far as explanation of key doctrines, and as far as Paul's major exhortation. That's all over. It's done. The four major sections come to a close, yet you can look at your Bible and see, well, wait a minute, it's not done yet. There's a couple pages here to go. The remainder of the book, Paul takes it from off the great expositions of truth, off the great exhortation to godly behavior, and moves it to a personal level, which excites me because, you know, Paul doesn't write autobiographically very much. He doesn't write a lot about himself. He writes a lot about how great his God is and how wonderful salvation is and the power of the Holy Spirit and the will of God for the church. 
There's not much in his writings about himself. So when there is, we go, ooh. We get some insight now into this guy, the way he thinks about himself and in the plan of God. And since he is second in the lineup of greats in the New Testament, Jesus being the greatest, in my opinion, Paul is, is second of greats in the New Testament. It's exciting for us to read this section. Well, let's... Uh, I said we're not going to get very far, but uh, let's begin in verse 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We remember that Paul had a special designation. It was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was Jewish. It's interesting. He was a rabbi, but he was the one called the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, we mentioned the word apostle means somebody sent out on a special mission. But his distinction is that of an apostle to the Gentiles. And he mentions that here. He's already mentioned it in previous verses. In fact, verses 7 through 12, the fact that the Gentiles have a part in God's plan. Verse 17, Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who were in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Keep in mind, Paul is writing this to a group he had never met. He had never yet been to Rome, ever. But I know that when I come to you, I shall, bring, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, 
that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy and by the will of God, that you may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now that sounds like the end. But then again, there's a whole chapter after that. So it's almost like Paul says, well, I'm still not done yet. And he gives personal greetings in chapter 16. So we get insight now in these verses. And I, I warned you already, we're not going to get very far tonight because there's some things we want to really look at, I think are very applicable for us, especially in the first few verses of this section. But here we have a personal profile of the personal ministry of Paul. Just like last week, we looked at a profile of a, of a true and healthy church. Here's the, the profile of the ministry, at least Paul's ministry. And the first thing I want to point out is that it is a partnering ministry. A partnering ministry. He didn't do it alone. He knew that others shared in ministry with him. It was a partnering ministry. I'm just going to run down the list and then we'll pick it up next time as well. Second, it was a priestly ministry. And I'll explain that. Third, it was a preaching ministry. It speaks about preaching through Illyricum and etc. Fourth, it was a pioneering ministry. He didn't want to build on another man's foundation. Fifth, it was a practical ministry because he wanted to bring help to the poor in Jerusalem. And finally, it was a prayerful ministry because he goes, I'm praying and I hope that you'll join with me in prayer. Let's look first at verse 14 and 15. It was a partnering ministry. Now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness filled with knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. I'm confident concerning you. They, they probably had a little bit of reason to wonder if maybe Paul wasn't too confident about them. He used some strong language in Romans. There's, there's never a rebuke. He doesn't rebuke this church. It's one of the noticeable things about the book of Romans as a letter, it holds no rebuke to a group, as other letters do. At the same time, he uses some very bold language, very strong theology in it, that perhaps would cause them to think, maybe he's not confident in us. Maybe he thinks we're immature. Maybe he's mad at us or something like that. He speaks about the wrath of God in the first few chapters. And if you were here, you remember how tough that was to go through. As we grapple with the whole issue of the wrath of God is poised against mankind apart from God's grace. Then also in the book of Romans, he speaks about how we war against the flesh and we need to put to death or mortify the deeds of the flesh. Maybe they were wondering, what does he think we are, a bunch of carnal people? And so the strong language or the bold language that Paul used maybe made them feel a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe they thought, well, Paul doesn't love us very much. Paul is saying, on the contrary, no way. We're partners together in this thing. I'm not the only one equipped to minister to you. I've written you a letter, and I have a ministry to the Gentiles and a ministry to the churches. But I'm not the only one who has a ministry. I am confident that you are able to minister to one another. We're partners in the ministry. You and the local church can minister to one another and build each other up. So that was one of the marks of his ministry. He had a partnering ministry. 
Now notice in that verse, he says, I'm confident that you are full of goodness. That means moral goodness. It speaks of moral character. In other words, he recognized that the church at Rome, and he had heard about them, had a, had a moral character, had the evidence that God had touched their lives. They bore fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Their works evidenced their faith. He knew that. You're full of goodness. Not innate goodness apart from Christ, but the evidence that you know him is that you have a good, obedient life. Moral goodness. Then he also notices that they are filled with all knowledge. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Filled with all knowledge. Now, he's not saying, you guys know everything there is to ever know about anything. Nor is he saying, you're a bunch of spiritual know-it-alls. He's simply saying, you know the gospel. You've got the nuts and bolts. You know adequately the truth of God, the gospel. You're spiritually sound. Full of goodness, morally. Filled with knowledge. Notice what else. Able also to admonish one another. Now I'm going to dwell on that for the next several minutes. You're full of goodness, you're full of knowledge, and I know that you're able also to admonish one another. The word admonish is a powerful word. It's the Greek word nutitheo. And it means literally to encourage, to warn, or to advise. The Williams translation puts it this way. I know that you are competent to counsel one another. Now, now keep his scope in view here. He is the apostle. He is the minister. He has written a great letter to minister to them, but he goes, you know what? I know that in your own body there is knowledge, there is goodness, and as a body of Christ you're able to minister to one another. I strongly believe that within every single church, every local church, every local portion of the body of Christ, all of the gifts needed are there. Right there. All of the gifts of the Spirit needed for maturity of the body are there. You don't have to go outside and find the experts who live in Chicago or Philadelphia or California and they'll teach us how to make it work. All of the needed gifts for the body to become what, they, what it should be is in the local church. You're able to admonish or competent and counsel one another. Why? Because, here's their qualification, moral character, knowledge of the Word of God, they could counsel. One of the marks of a mature church is when the members of the body get to the level where because of the moral goodness through obedience to Christ and a grasp of the Word of God because they're taught the Word of God, they're able to counsel one another. You know what a sign of an immature church is? When it is staff heavy. Staff heavy. That is, the professionals on staff are the only ones that know how to do it. So if you want any needs met, you must come to the building and you must meet one of the professionals and one of the professionals will get it all fixed for you. That's immature Christianity. A mature church is volunteer heavy. It's where the people in the flock are raised up and able to counsel one another. Now, in some churches, um, it's sort of trained like it's a spectator sport. 
The pastor is supposed to know everything. Of course, no pastor does. The pastor is supposed to do everything, and those that ever try to do that will get burned out very quickly. And the rest will just sit in the grandstands like they're watching a football game and never get involved. That's immaturity. Maturity is where the admonishing or the counseling, the ministering goes on one to another. All faithful Christians are gifted then to encourage and counsel others. Now, I don't know if you've been into a bookstore lately and have wandered over to the self-help section. You, know, you, you, you have a problem in your life, you want to get that problem dealt with, and so you go to the, to the section of the bookstore that has all the answers. It is the most confusing section of literature to hit planet Earth. Nobody agrees with anybody. And these are written by PhDs and experts on, on how to live your life right. This is counseling. There's an article that I have here from Red Book Magazine called Self-Help That Won't Help. Here's the article. When going, the going gets tough, even though the tough turn to self-help books, a few books offer guidance that leaves us scratching our heads. As an example, to improve your mind, one author says to women, change your ponytail. Think about it, says the author. You probably have never seen a woman with a high ponytail who's ready to slit her wrists. Close quote. Wow. That's, that's deep. Another one, to accept your body, Carolyn Hillman tells women to have a conversation with their fat. I just want you to know, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is, this is an excerpt. Quote, ask your fat what it does to help you. Within parenthesis, you already know how it gets in the way, close parenthesis and what positive image it projects. And she says, women say this, fat, what do you do for me? And then as if the fat answers back, she quotes it. I protect you from being sexually harassed by projecting an image that says, I'm big and you better not mess around with me. Here's another one. To develop empathy, one PhD says, become your own favorite pet. Think about what you might learn by getting down on all fours and lapping up water with your tongue. Close quote. This stuff is in print, and people gobble this stuff up to get help on how to live. Now, granted, these are really outlandish um, ideas, but there's a lot of them out there. Unfortunately, when uh, many Christians hear the term counseling, they go, oh, well, that's reserved for a, a, a skilled, elite, priestly caste of a very, very few. It's interesting that Paul didn't know this church, but knew the Spirit of God and the power of the Word of God well enough to say, I know that though I'm the minister, you're a partner in ministering to yourselves. You're able to counsel, to advise, to encourage one another. 
You know, if you look back at church history, ever since apostolic times, counseling has been a part of church life. And it's clear. Any cursory reading of the New Testament at all shows that it was a regular part of church activity for the rank-and-file believer, not the elite professional. I'll give you a couple examples. We read just one in verse 14, admonish one another. Hebrews 3, 13, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, encourage one another and build up one another. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Counseling, then, is simply a result of Christian maturity within the body of Christ, where there is a level of moral goodness, not an elite priestly caste, just a, a level of moral goodness that's brought on by obedience to Christ and a knowledge of the scriptural principles of Christ. And you do it to one another, the rank-and-file believer. Colossians 3.16, listen carefully to this. Let the word of God, let the word of Christ, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonition, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Unfortunately, the Christian church today has become conditioned by the world, by worldly thinking, to look at this book as being inadequate. That's ah, good for the light stuff. But if there's real severe stuff, all of the prayer and all of the Bible won't do a lick of good. You need to go to the prose to pull this one off. And so this is a very important text. I think of Jeremiah, the prophet, who lamented over his people. And God spoke to him and said, My people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And two, they have dug out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. They've forsaken the source of refreshment, God. They've hewn out, and the, the picture is clear, they dig out of the rock this big hole to put water in to save it for their, their, their drinking supply. And after they dig it all out, they find there's a crack in the bedrock and it can't hold water. And I think that many Christians, to be relevant or to be whatever, have forsaken the authority of God and the Spirit and the Word and have dug holes, systems, ideologies. They can't hold any water. No refreshment. Why? Well, because the world makes us feel awfully intimidated by its degrees and its systems and its philosophies. And so we look again at the Bible and we say, well, for superficial problems it's okay, but it's beyond our grasp for the rest of the stuff. Listen to this. A Joint Commission on Mental Health and Mental uh, Illness did a national survey and found that nearly half of all individuals that come for counseling went to a clergyman first. You know why? They just innately thought God has to have some kind of answers. The problem isn't the inadequacy of the Bible. The, the problem is the inadequacy of people to know and understand and apply it. That's really what it is. Research psychiatrist E. Fuller Torrey says, 
5% of those who come to a psychiatrist, now understand that a psychiatrist is very different than a psychologist. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor with mental health training. 5% of those who come to a psychiatrist have organic brain disease, legitimate brain deficiency. 75% of the people that come, he says, are people with problems of living. Problems on how to live, problems of living. 20% require closer examination to make the final judgment. Listen to what he's saying. He says 75% of the people who come to us need to be educated on how to live. How to live right. If there's one thing the Bible excels at, it's how to live. How to know the will of God, how to relate to each other and have strong relationships and how to excel in those relationships, how to be the right kind of person, how to find meaning in life. Who is better equipped than someone full of moral goodness and full of the knowledge of God's truth? You are able to admonish one another. And why should I let somebody separated from God teach me how to live? If it's really living and the habit of living and the pattern of living I'm after, let's get to the source, which is God and his truth. So, you're full of goodness, you're filled with knowledge, you're also able to admonish one another. The word in the New Testament for soul, by the way, is suke. We get the word psyche, psychiatry, psychology from that idea. Suke, that's the realm of the sacred, not the secular. That's, that's what God traffics in. Did you know that for years the church historically called counseling uh, soul work? That's what they called it, soul work. They would deal with person's soul, the way they think, the way they live. However, um, Freud and others have approached humanity's problems with this grid, this framework. It's, it's unbiblical framework, but the, it's a mechanistic view of human behavior. They would say that humans are basically good. The Bible says humans are basically sinful. We read that already in Romans. They need a savior. But they'll say humans are basically good and that the answers lie within us. The Bible says man is by nature evil, sinful by nature and by choice. And the answers come not from within us, but from without us. From the outside, a source of revelation quite apart from humanity. God is separate and distinct from his creation. Freud and others would say the key to understanding and correcting your attitudes lies in our past. So you drudge it all up. Also, our problems are the result of what somebody else did to us. So we have a nation full of victims. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. I was dropped as a child or my father did this. Or... And you know what? I don't want to diminish those experiences for you because some of you have had very painful frameworks of childhood. I've never met anyone yet that has had a perfect one. I've met every person I met could, could tag somebody or something or blame it somewhere because I've never met a perfect parent, frankly. You kinda, it's on job training, isn't it? You learn as you go, unless you have good, solid, biblical principles, and even then we make mistakes. The other thing that this framework of counseling would say is that only professionals can solve our problems and that the Bible and prayer are inadequate. That's their framework. However, you ought to know that even the professionals are starting to come to grips 
with some of the common sense stuff that many of our parents already knew raising us and certainly that the Bible would reinforce. Here's an example, this article I found. Aaron was an 11-year-old boy whose behavior was described by Dr. William Glasser, his psychiatrist, as horrible. In his book, Reality Therapy, Glasser says Aaron was the most obnoxious child he had ever met. The boy would kick, scream, run away and hide, become withdrawn, disrupt his classes, make everyone disgusted with him. Dr. Glasser saw one problem with Aaron that no one else observed. Quote, he says, no one had ever told him that he was doing wrong. Close quote. No one ever set limits on what he could do and could not do. The article goes on. The psychiatrist decided to try a completely new tack. The boy would have to behave. Act reasonable or be punished. He responded remarkably. <laughs> the doctor says, quote, probably because he had been anxious for so long to be treated in a realistic way, close quote. Thus, he became courteous, well-behaved. His miserable grades went to straight A's. For the first time in his life, Aaron began to play constructively with other children, to enjoy honest relationships with others, to stop blaming his troubles on his mother or on other people. Dr. Glasser calls this reality therapy and says... One of an individual's greatest needs is to be made to realize that he is personally responsible for what he does and that right behavior accomplishes more than wrong behavior. You know, if you would have just read two chapters of Genesis, you'd have come up with reality therapy. A couple paragraphs of it. For reality therapy, as they call it, to work, you have to have a basis of morals, don't you? He said right versus wrong. Somebody has to be there to say, that's right, that's wrong. If you do that, they'll, you'll be punished. That's biblical stuff. But the pros are going, you know, we just discovered something new. So, notice what resources you have, once again. You personalize that now. You are also full of goodness filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Now just think of, for a moment what resources you have. You say, well, what could I do? Just think of what you have. Number one, you have the Word of God. Not a bad start, is it? You have, got God, you have God's self-disclosure, the Word of God, a textbook, among other things, on how to live, on how to relate. David said, your testimonies, O Lord, are my counselors. The Word of God can do it. Second, you have prayer. What does prayer do? Is it just something, oh, it makes us feel good. We do it because I unload my heavy burden. No, prayer connects you with God's resources, connects you with God's power, connects you with the Holy Spirit. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, that's a third resource you have, the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of you. That's cool. Jesus said, I will send you another parakaleo, parakletos, another counselor, another comforter, somebody who's called alongside to give you counsel, to give you help. And I need all the help I can get. And so I gladly receive the Holy Spirit. 
However, the church more and more seems to be preoccupied with a worldly role model rather than talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Holy Spirit, submitting and yielding to the Holy Spirit. For some, that just seems uh, passe, as if it doesn't work. That's heartbreaking to me. Listen to one, and I say it carefully, Christian psychologist who asserted this, everyone has deep problems rooted in childhood conflicts, and if they don't see a professional analyst regularly, your life is almost certainly not to be what it could be. Notice, he said everyone. Everyone's got these conflicts, and everyone needs to see the analyst, or everyone's going to be messed up. I'm sorry. I don't buy it. I buy this. You are also full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able also to counsel or competent to admonish one another. You have a fourth resource. You know what the resource is? You, the body of Christ, collectively. That's why we can't be isolated individuals. The body of Christ, the church. And when you get all of us together, as imperfect as we are, we are, there's the gifts of the Spirit. There's the fruit of the Spirit. And there's an amazing healing that takes place. And so Peter writes these words. It's good to commit it to memories. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Just remember that. He's given us not a few things that work sometimes, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. So, the Bible word for this change isn't therapy, it's sanctification. Sanctification. We get changed from glory to glory. We get holier as life goes on, as time goes on. Chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove it is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. So you've got the Word of God. You've got prayer to God that unleashes His resources, the Holy Spirit of God. You have the body of Christ. What are we doing with all of those resources? Here's the mighty army of God on earth filled with His Holy Spirit. What are we doing? Peter Marshall described 20th century Christianity by saying, quote, they're like deep sea divers encased in suits designed for many fathoms deep, marching bravely forth to pull plugs out of bathtubs. Why? If we've got all of this to do what God has called us to do. Now, I told you that this would take time. To me, it's important. You know, there's two ways to get into the pulpit. One because you have to say something and one because you have something to say. And I think you can tell I've got something to say. And that's one of those key texts that it's always, I've always been blessed by, the one that we just read. But I want to get practical before we move on to the next verse. How does this take place? This sounds very good, Skip, very, yeah, you're really all pumped up about this and we can do it, one another stuff. How does it work? Three ways. Number one, large group meetings like this. Large group meetings like this where the Word of God is consecutively, consistently taught 
If the conditions are met, which is receiving the word of God with an open heart, change takes place. Discipleship takes place. Incredible ways. I think you've noticed it. We, we, we come to a meeting, perhaps, or we're young in our faith. We come to church, preconceived ideas. We have our own lens about life. And then we read the scripture, and it's explained. We go, oh, I get it. Oh, I see it. Mm. And you start growing because you receive the word of God. So it works in large group meetings. Secondly, small group dynamics. By the way, that's a New Testament model. They met publicly and from house to house. Small group environments. The early church often met in homes. Um, you know, we can teach the word like this, but that doesn't ensure real ministry dynamic. And so homes are good for that. Informal, they're inviting, they're more like a family environment. In a home you can discuss. You can have two-way or three-way communication. And you can pray over key issues. That's why we have home fellowships. We strongly believe in home fellowships. We strongly believe that if you want to be strong, get involved in the large group dynamic, get involved in the small group dynamic, and you will grow. You know, we found, this is my personal opinion now, 90% of life's issues will be solved when there is the reception of the Word of God in a meeting such like this, and the Bible is faithfully taught, and number two, you're in a small group environment to flesh out and to discuss those issues and pray over them. The more that happens, the less there's a need for the one-on-one -on -one type of counseling. In fact, one of the questions we invariably ask anyone who comes in for counseling, and we do counseling, by the way, we ask them, do you go to a home fellowship? Most of the time, the answer is, uh-uh. And so my heart rejoices when I see people come to church with notebooks, and they're writing things down. They're writing it down. They want to remember it. They want to apply it. Then they'll go to a home fellowship, and they'll discuss, and they'll pray. A third way it happens is one-on-one. One-on-one encouragement, one-on-one dynamic, one-on-one discipleship. Listen to what Leonard Syme, from the, a professor of epidemiology, University of California at Berkeley, said about about this. It just kind of proves that, yeah, the Bible was right all along. A large group with that small group dynamic and then that interpersonal relationship. This is what he says. The more social ties we have, the better will be our health and the lower the death rate. The more isolated a person becomes, the poorer will be his health and the higher the death rate. Scripture says a person isolates himself to his own what? Destruction destruction. That's why we were meant to be together, one another. All, there's so many one another scriptures. And you know you have to be with people to pull the one another's off, don't you? That's how it works. You're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish one another. And we just finished a verse. Verse 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace of God that is given to me. Paul was bold. It wasn't a rebuke, but there were bold points in the book of Romans. Now sometimes we need soft messages. We need encouraging messages. And, and the Bible has both kinds, the soft and the encouraging. And then other times we need the bold and the confrontive. 
And sometimes we walk away from a message by its very nature, and we go, oh, I'm so comforted by that. That promise is so awesome. The other times we walk away from a study and we're going, man, I'm convicted. We need both, don't we? We need a, a balance of that. We're called children of God. And children need lots of love, but sometimes they need strong words. And Paul gave the church at Rome both. Notice that he says, uh, I'm going to remind you. I spoke boldly on some points as reminding you because of the grace of God given to me. You know, every good teacher knows that there are two enemies to truth. Enemy number one, forgetfulness. Enemy number two, familiarity. Familiarity, you hear it so often, you tune it out. Parents, if you have children, you know what that's like. They've heard it. They've heard the speech. And so you want to be creative and kind of tell them a different way sometimes to reinforce it. Familiarity is an enemy of the truth. Forgetfulness is we forget a whole bunch. And that's why a good teacher will reinforce the truth, say it over again. In fact, one of the, the cardinal rules in preaching is a little axiom that says, announce to your people what you're going to tell them, tell it to them, and then tell them what you just told them. It's amazing how often Jesus did that. He would repeat several key themes to his disciples over and over again. So he says, we all need to be reminded. Why? Because of, well, one, the deficiency of our, of our brains. We remember 25% of everything we hear if it's told to us twice. How much do we remember if, if we hear it once? I forgot. I don't know. I don't even remember the statistic. But you know, it's amazing to me how much I forget. Sometimes, I'll teach a lesson four times on a weekend. And you'd think, oh, I'll have this memorized forever. I can go back after a couple months and go, what was that about? So I need to reread it again in the scripture. We need reinforcement. Another reason is I have a sin nature. I know you do too, but I'm just speaking for me right now. I have a sin nature. And my sin nature is a selective rememberer and a selective uh, forgetter as well. There's certain things just wants to forget, certain things it wants to remember, so I need reinforcement of the truth. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, Paul says, This is the very reason I am sending you Timothy. He will remind you of what I teach about Christ Jesus and all the churches wherever I go. And then Paul writes to Timothy himself. He's the young pro pro uh, protege being raised up. And he says, I remind you, fan the flame of the spiritual gift that God gave you. And then 2 Peter chapter 1 is really the classic text on this. I plan to keep on reminding you of these things even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth. This is what he's saying. I know, I know, you already know this, you've already heard it, been there, done that. Guess what? You get it again. I'm going to keep reminding you of these things and reinforcing the truth, and so Paul does here. Years ago, a letter came to a, a newspaper, a magazine in Britain called the British Weekly. A guy was disparaging the church, sermons in particular, and uh, this is what he wrote. Dear sir, I notice that ministers seem to get a great deal of importance on their sermons, and they spend a great deal of time in preparing their sermons. I've been attending services quite regularly now for the past 30 years, and during that time, if I estimate correctly, I've listened to no less than 3,000 sermons. 
But to my consternation, I discover I can't remember a single one of them. I wonder, he concludes, if a minister's time might be more profitably spent on something else. Sincerely, and he signed his name. Well, that, that caused a fury of letters in response. Angry letters came back. But the one letter that sort of ended all the argument was this one. My dear sir, I have been married for 30 years. During that time, I have eaten 32,850 meals, mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I have discovered that I cannot remember the menu of a single meal, and yet I have received nourishment from every one of them. I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago. <laughs> 